Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Eric. And we actually have a very packed show today. We have a double header with two guests from a little further south here in Southern California, from Irvine, actually. Orange County. And first up, we've got an interview with Andrew Tonkovich, editor of the Santa Monica Review and a lecturer at the University of California, Irvine. Andrew is the co-editor most recently with his wife, the poet and writer Lisa Alvarez, of the collection Orange County, A Literary Field Guide, which we'll be talking about. And then after the break, we'll return with our conversation with Rebecca Tuhus Dubrow, a writer in residence also at UC Irvine, whose most recent book is Personal Stereo, A Cultural History of the Walkman, published by Bloomsbury Academic as part of its Object Lesson series. Yeah, it is a really packed show. I thought really two fantastic conversations. It was exciting getting to know Orange County in ways that I had not anticipated through this collection that Andrew and Lisa Alvarez put together. And then it was really fun talking to Rebecca about the personal stereo, which I too miss in some ways. Yeah, <laughs> and in some ways don't. In some ways I, I don't. I don't remember, I don't miss uh, rewinding the tape all the time. No, and we did briefly touch on the problem of batteries. And that was a plague upon our listening world. Yes. Well, batteries now still a problem. Yes. But you just plug in somewhere and you can do that almost anywhere. Much rather than easier. Have to drive somewhere and buy two clunky batteries. We were outside most of the time looking for batteries. <laughs> <laughs> just roaming the streets looking for discarded batteries that might it's, have some charge. It was like the road by Cormac McCarthy, but <laughs> battery initiated. Uh, anyways, a dark time. However, our conversation with Rebecca was uh, full of light. Was full of light. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And now to those conversations. First up, we've got Andrew Tonkovich. We're excited to be speaking today with Andrew Tonkovich, editor of the Santa Monica Review and a professor at the University of California, Irvine. Tonkovich and his wife, poet and writer Lisa Alvarez, recently released Orange County, a Literary Field Guide, which is a collection of stories, poems, and essays about that other major SoCal county, just slightly afield from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So can you start out by just telling us what you and Lisa were trying to do with this book, kind of what is a literary field guide to Orange County? Yeah, my co-editor, Lisa Alvarez, had begun some... which involved for both of us, I think, discovering new work and kind of finding a way in, as we two literary types might, into our adopted home. And after assembling pages and pages of terrifically good and representative material, it was, in fact, Lisa who came upon the conceit or the kind of organizing method of putting the book together as a way of both situating it in the work of Heyday, our excellent publisher, which is known for field guides of the natural world, as well as its commitment to native California, sometimes called Indian country, and literature and history. So that we like to imagine that we've helped define and maybe redefine a little bit the county in both a kind of topographical sense and also literary. 
And it was, in fact, Lisa who thought of the conceit, again, of dividing this 150 years or so of poetry, memoir, short stories, novels into six areas of the county. Was there a beginning to your personal definition of the place or for Lisa? I will cop to a certain prejudice or unfair, in many ways, expectation about this place. Some personal history might help. Both she and I attended the MFA program at UC Irvine, and we had no intention of staying in Orange County. But Why not? Well, the anticipated kind of view, sometimes fairly, is of a place where of retreat uh, from the urban environment, a kind of intellectual backwardness, suburban sprawl, some very often amusing and tortured politics. And I'm sure many of you listeners and readers will have heard of some of the funny jokes about Orange County. There's a sort of desperate history here. And yet, when we've studied and looked at so much of the literature, we've seen it addressed in a really interesting and critical way, creative ways, sometimes with correctives and revisionist history. And also, frankly, there's a lot to celebrate about this place. So Lisa and I have have sort of become boosters, if in a qualified way, uh, celebrating the county's recent vote I heard a speaker a few days ago say if, if Orange County had voted, then Trump would not have won. That's much different than the stereotypical and real Orange County and its politics of, say, 40, 30 or 40 years ago. That's right. It seems like the politics have changed. I remember from the introduction, which was written by Gustavo Arellano, he wrote something about Reagan calling the place heaven. Yeah, you spun it in a favorable way. In fact, what he said was a kind of, uh, in, in his own Reaganoid way, a little bit wittier and cruel. Uh, he said it was the place where good Republicans go to die. So <laughs> oh, good. It, you, can, you can choose your uh, sort of eternal uh, remove of, you know, of choice there. It's, it's actually kind of a gruesomely funny comment And, of course, it's also the county where, indeed, President Nixon went to die. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the, uh, nearby community of Yorba Linda quite famously gave uh, him a break so that he and Pat were both able to change the zoning laws. And they lie in eternal slumber at the famous Richard Nixon Library and Birthplace site. So, yes. Your, your point is well taken. The place is identified very much with a kind of reactionary politics and, let's be clear, uh, white privilege, a sort of almost cartoonish John Wayne, because this is where he lived, sort of story there. And we try to ride that story a little bit and undermine it and bring in a lot of voices to do some fun and engaging and entertaining things with it. So you mentioned at the beginning, Andrew, that you and Lisa's relationship to Orange County has changed since you first moved there. 
Can you talk in a little bit of detail about kind of how it's changed? And politically speaking, do you think that there has been any movement in Orange County and what might explain that? Yeah, plenty. I'll I'll say that the county has indeed changed. Maybe I would I, I, I imagine in the way that the state of California has responded politically to so much that ironically the Reagan agenda introduced. So the the chickens haven't quite come home to roost. The chickens have, I would argue, been transformed into a more interesting bird down here, where we see the redefinition of much of the county as much more international. Irvine, which has a kind of a good or bad rap as a sort of planned community with uh, presumed sterility, nonetheless is one of the most ethnically diverse and international locales in all of the state. Mm. The uh, the county's politics have, at least at the grassroots level, shifted quite a bit. And let's be clear, as you indicated earlier, I'm a lecturer at one of the major public research universities in the, the nation. Yeah. And that has had quite an important impact, I think, across the board. The arts in Orange County are, and I'll just brag here, quite amazing so that uh, here we have a, a vigorous literary scene. We have theater at the Sagerstrom and at the South Coast Rep. We have um, artists who come to Orange County before they come to L.A. So, you know, there's a lot of paradox here and a lot of irony. And I think that the general perception of the place needs to be challenged and updated. And in some kind of a way, I think looking at, again, the poetry, fiction, memoirs that are included in our anthology, try to do a little bit toward uh, achieving that. Okay. And would you tell us a little bit now, getting back to the to the book, a little bit about the poetry and the memoirs and the fiction that you've included in this quite big collection, actually. I was, I was surprised to see how many writers have actually talked about Orange County. So w- tell us, sure. tell us and, and the listener about it. Sure. Uh, we have, we had to make the difficult choices so that indeed some of the big names associated with the literature, the arts and the history and politics of the county, frankly, don't need to be here because they have sort of their own place on uh, the shelf. And those who wrote about the place early on, like the legendary Carrie McWilliams, like Madame Elena Modjeska, who was a Shakespearean actress, Richard Henry Dana, most readers will know their names, but they may not remember that Steve Martin, the all-around super talented magician and banjo player and actor and writer and comic, that he grew up here rode his bicycle and got a job at the uh, famous magic shop at Disneyland. The number of people who have come through here, lived here, grew up here, visited, you asked about poets, the, the, the lineup of poets and novelists and uh, journalists who've paid some attention to our county is 
pretty impressive. Charles Wright was a teacher at UC Irvine. Harriet Mullen, who's one of the funniest and smartest contemporary poets currently writing, she's got a piece here. Emmy Perez, Garrett Hongo, very accomplished and, and uh, celebrated poets like Yusuf Komunyaka. So we've tried to include and represent, as they say, a number of different experiences in this kind of kaleidoscopic little collection, but then organized with some nod to the history and, again, the topography. Andrew, I wanted to ask you about that kaleidoscopic nature of it. I think that's a perfect way to describe it, because it's both like kind of refracting what is the totality of Orange County through a variety of different voices. I mean, you mentioned Garrett Hongo, for example. You have a piece by him called The Pier, which is about walking around Newport Beach, I think, after his father has died. And and that gave me a sense of, like, real melancholy to Orange County, which is not something that I associate with Orange County. My experience of Orange County is actually much more like the Michael Chabon story about Zinc Cafe in Laguna Beach, right? Where it's just kind of yuppies and, you know, they're kind of fun and breezy life that's relatively carefree and, you know, you both hate them but like being around them. So can you talk about how this collection really brings out the the multifaceted nature of Orange County? Well, I'm so pleased that you observe that. We've got the highs and the lows. We have the sort of giddy and sarcastic and sophisticated wit of somebody indeed like Michael Chabon. And then Garrett Hongo's piece is very much a personal meditation with politics. Also, I would point out pieces by uh, Emmy Perez. She writes about her neighborhood, her old neighborhood, the legendary Halliday Street in Santa Ana. There's a gorgeous piece by Karen Onway Lee, who's a California poet, and it's about the tristeza, where she plays around a little bit with that word, which appears in both Spanish and French, Mm. and it means sadness. And she writes about a kind of melancholy of place, but she references it directly to the actual word that was used by the Mexican laborers to describe the blight which hit the citrus crop here. Of course, you know that the citrus crop, the oranges in particular, gave this place its name. Now it's almost impossible to find orange groves in Orange County. So indeed, you you went right for it. There's there's a kind of sometimes joyful uh, remembrance of the past. There's a lot of, I would say, satire and even redemption-seeking insights. And then there's also some real sadness about what's gone. There's another beautiful poem by Linda Thomas, a a local teacher and poet called Orange, 1951. And you can imagine that the little city of Orange was much, much a different place in 1951 with the clabbered houses and the largely segregated community, and her experience is one of real wisdom about what it was like to grow up during that time and try try to reconcile with what she saw and what she learned. You know what, actually, Andrew, bouncing off of that, so that's an example of a kind of local writer 
Right. And then Shabon would be an example of a writer who is not local. Right. And one of the things that fascinates me about the guide, and I'm just wondering how you and Lisa kind of walked through it from an editorial perspective, is that there seems to be a difference between uh, regional writing. Right. So kind of like local color writing, writing by people from a place about that place. And then there's kind of writing about a region, right, which is where people from anywhere end up taking a particular place, geographic space as their subject. So you have both of those things going on in this collection. So kind of how do you think about regional writing versus writing about a region? And kind of how did that get factored into your editorial plan for the book? Well, I'd say that the bottom line for us was making sure that we selected some of the very, very best literary work that we could find. So it might be, Eric, that you're alluding to a kind of genre that is often, uh, how should we say, sometimes a bit solipsistic, often comes out of the local presses only, and has a sort of boosterism feel to it. And although, frankly, I enjoy a lot of those local books, we were indeed looking to make this a literary uh, anthology. So uh, the people who came through here and wrote about the region, I have to say, I think what happened to them, whether it was E.L. Doctorow or whether it was uh, Tom Vanderbilt from the Baffler magazine or Christopher uh, Isherwood. Yeah, or MFK Fisher, who's one of our favorites and who spent her summers in Laguna, is as much as they sometimes tried to distance themselves and gain perspective the way that artists do, it's pretty hard not to see that they also established some real affection for the place, even as in the scathing piece by Vanderbilt or John Wiener's visit to the opening, the original opening of the Nixon Museum. I feel like they appreciated, if that's not too vague a word, (laughs) the momentousness and the development and the various ways of kind of seeing what used to be a very provincial spot and now has maybe become, uh, I don't know, a place with a lot more gravitas so that regionalism was, I think, experienced by people and maybe it has something to do with their perceptions. But for us, we were very much interested in the whole art making. I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, Andrew, but would you tell us about a favorite piece of yours or one of the favorites? Sure. I'd have to say that MFK Fisher, the famous and renowned food writer, her visits to Laguna Beach really impressed us early on, and we discovered how much the place meant to her. She wrote a fictionalized version of Laguna in a kind of mean short story, which has all the politics and struggles that appear even to this day. And it was also the first piece, if you can imagine this, that the first piece that a very young MFK Fisher was paid for in the beginnings of a long, decades-long career. And It's just remarkable and wonderful to read how she sort of sends up some of the same types that you find in the Michael Chabon piece, which Eric admired. If you're asking me to recommend a particular book, I can do that. 
by way of somebody who listeners might be really intrigued with. And that is uh, an extremely esteemed poet who I confess I feel some real disappointment in her not being more lauded. And her name is Anne Stanford. Poets will know her, and she's one of those writers who my co-editor Lisa kind of discovered. And it's been a happy coincidence that last year would have been her 100th birthday. So that for people who are going to go to someone next after having read all 68 pieces in our book, Lisa and I would very much recommend Anne Stanford. She wrote nine books. She was a scholar. She was born in La Habra, which is in northern Orange County, and she won every award out there, and it was Copper Canyon Press a few years back who printed her selected poems of Anne Stanford. And she's, I guess, if you're asking me today, she's the uh, writer that we would really like to spotlight as someone who, who really helps, helped us as editors learn about and define Orange County. Thank you so much, Andrew. We've been speaking with Andrew Tonkovich, who, along with his wife, the poet and writer Lisa Alvarez, is the editor of the recently released collection, Orange County, A Literary Field Guide. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now, to our interview with Rebecca Tuhas Dubrow. We're excited to have on the show with us today Rebecca Tuhus Dubrow, a writer in residence at the University of California, Irvine. Rebecca's work has been featured in publications such as Slate, The Nation, LA Review of Books, and The Descent, where she is also a contributing editor. Rebecca was a journalism and media fellow at the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, and her most recent book is Personal Stereo, A Cultural History of the Walkmen, published by Bloomsbury as part of its Object Lesson series. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you so much. So first, can you just explain to us what this book is? Sure. As you said, it's a cultural history of the Walkman. So it was inspired in part by my own nostalgia for the Walkman, which I listened to all the time when I was a teenager. And it traces the arc of how the Walkman came to be invented, debate over whether it was actually an invention at all, or rather an evolution building on previous ways of listening to music. And then its reception in primarily the U.S., but also the UK and to some extent the whole world. And it had quite an ambivalent reception, I would say. And then continuing to today when some of us, including myself, find ourselves being nostalgic for it in the context of other kinds of personal devices that are in some ways similar, but in other ways fundamentally different. Can you tell us a little bit about the nostalgia you just mentioned? What do you feel nostalgic for in terms of the stereo? Is it the sort of heaviness of it, which now 
<laughs> you know, we barely experience with the kind of devices that we have? Or is it the kind of clunkiness? Is it the sound? What is it that you miss? Yeah, I think it's not so much the physical object as just the experience. And I think it has a lot to do with, it was a very powerful emotional experience to listen to the Walkman. How so? Well, it's very intimate just to be listening to music alone and having the music right there in your ear. And, you know, music, of course, is very emotionally powerful in general, but I think that intimate mode of listening makes it even more so. So I just have a lot of really fond, vivid memories of listening to my Walkman, you know, while taking walks and while riding buses. So I think that's one reason that I, and based on my conversations with other people, a lot of people feel this way, you know, they just get really excited when I bring up the Walkman. So of course it's only people of a certain age, but yeah, I think it's that and the contrast, of course, we can still listen to music on our devices, but to me, it's a really different experience listening to music on a Walkman versus listening on a smartphone, because on a Walkman, you really were able to be transported kind of into an alternate reality. And with iPhones, you're still kind of subject to temptations and interruptions, and it's just not the same kind of escape. Is there a favorite record or tape that you listened to when you first had a Walkman as a teenager and took the bus? Probably my mixtapes were the best because I Your made personal mixtapes? Yeah, the ones I made for myself. I know they're supposed to be like great gifts and love <laughs> letters, but I find or I found that when I made them for myself, they were better than the ones I received as gifts because I really would like I was very serious about it. And I would wait, I would only make one every year or two and really accumulate songs that I really loved and then collect them all in one place. So wait, now, Rebecca, were you a, did you tape from the radio or did you transfer from other people's tapes? I, it's okay. The statute of limitations is far enough. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So my two best friends and I had periodic mixing parties, which were just the best. And we would gather all our CDs and tapes at one house and spend like all Saturday making mixes. So I would tape some off my own CDs and tapes and some off of theirs, basically. That sounds really, I I see why you're nostalgic for that. That sounds really fun. Like a great way to spend a Saturday. Actually, can you, for our millennial listeners, (laughs) can you explain what a Walkman is? Yes, let's describe (laughs) it. (laughs) Well, it's, a cassette player. Do you think that requires explanation? Well, I sure. think actually a cassette oh. is different for, you know, I'm thinking of my 18-year-old cousin who just went to college has no concept of what a cassette is for video yeah. or for music. So maybe it yeah. is worth explaining. Well, hmm, how do I explain? It's, I don't know, it's a cassette. <laughs> it's a tape. <laughs> I don't really know how to describe it, but, you know, it's a rectangular plastic object that's, I don't know, about the size of a pack of cards or yeah. A little smaller. And this thinner. is how you list, used to listen to music, kids. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It used to be on tape. Yeah. <laughs> there was a tape ribbon that would move and when the music was playing and you could fast forward or rewind. So the Walkman was a device for playing a cassette and it came with headphones. And 
apparently that was really revolutionary in 1979. Like the idea of listening to music out and about on headphones, that just was not done. Although it was technically feasible or the technology was basically there, but it just wasn't done. Um, Because before the Walkman, right, what we primarily had in terms of portable music was the boombox. Yeah, well, there was also the transistor radio. Oh, right, of course, yeah. But that was, from what I understand, the sound quality just wasn't good, and it was very tinny, and it was also not stereo. So it was just Oh, it was just mono, okay. Yeah, so the stereo sounds made a huge difference and made people feel like they were really immersed in the music in a way that the transistor radios didn't. And yeah, the boombox was an obvious contrast because they were big in the 70s. Some people loved them, some people not so much. And, you know, they were, they were a way of kind of throwing a party in the middle of the city for some people, but they were also very intrusive to others. And so the Walkman was a major contrast with that because you could now listen to your music in public without including other people in that. So actually, this I think this provides a good opportunity for us to sort of start talking about the history of this object, which in your book begins in post-World War II Japan. So would you tell us a little bit about how this revolutionary object began and why? For Japan was where Sony was founded. Sony was founded in 1945, and it was founded by two friends in Tokyo, Akio Morita and Masaru Ibuka. And they started by kind of repairing radios and trying to figure out what would make their name and what would be their big product. Their first breakthrough was producing a tape recorder in Japan. And at the time, those were these really big reel-to-reel machines and It was the first one available in Japan. And so they gradually became this extremely successful business, not only in Japan, but globally. And they branched out into TVs and VCRs. And toward the end of the 70s, there are actually a number of stories about the origins. So it's not entirely clear exactly how the idea was conceived. But one story has it that Akio Morita kind of thought of it as a way of escaping his children's noise. Another story has it that... I love that story. Ibuka, <laughs> that Ibuka requested a device like this to listen to on long airplane flights. And the idea was that he would use it for himself, but didn't really think about bringing it to market. But then it worked so well, and it was he kind of fell in love with it, and they decided to bring it to market. So it's not entirely clear like exactly what the story was, but Sony had this idea and they started selling it in 1979. And one interesting part of the story is that a man named Andreas Pavel, who is a German man who lived in Brazil for most of his childhood, he independently had the idea in 1972 is when he says he made the first prototype when he was on vacation in Switzerland. And it was just the experience just blew him away and it was astonishing. And he also thought, oh, this is just something that's great that I can listen to by myself and share with my friends. But then eventually had the idea that he should try to patent it, which he did in 1976. 
there was this really long legal battle for that. So he patented it, but he went to different electronics companies and no one was interested in the idea. Everyone thought it was a really bad idea. So he wasn't able to actually get it produced and marketed. But then Sony came out with it in 1979, and and then he had a really long legal battle with Sony over decades. And the key question was whether it was really an evolution or an invention. And Pavel claims that it was a true invention, that it had been non-obvious before. And Sony claims that it was actually just an evolution. And Sony ended up prevailing in a court in London. But later, actually in 2004, they settled with Pavel, who had threatened to continue suing them in other countries. And so he got a settlement. And so that lends some weight to his claim that it was a true invention and that he was the inventor. It's really amazing to think about how long that yeah. uh, <laughs> that debate went on, right? Decades right, and decades. Yeah. yeah. One of the immediate criticisms, one of several immediate criticisms of the personal stereo when it first came out, specifically the Walkman, was that it would lead people to be socially isolated, right? People would retreat behind their headphones and, you know, kind of ignore the rest of the world. Can you talk about that kind of fear? I mean, on the one hand, you also mentioned, you referenced the philosopher George Simmel and about this was kind of Simmel's vision also of alienation in the modern metropolis, Do you think that those claims and fears were true in the moment or were they kind of just overblown hype? I think it was both. I think there was some truth to the fact that certainly people wanted to be in their own worlds. In my case, it was often usually just because I really wanted to listen to music. I didn't necessarily want to be antisocial, but still (laughs) the effect is that you're kind of ignoring the people around you. And in some cases, people definitely did just put on their headphones because they didn't want to deal with other people. In some cases, understandably, there's some evidence that women used it that way more often than men, or they put on headphones because they found that men didn't catcall them as much when they did that, things like that. But so, yeah, I think, of course, Simmel was writing, I think, in hundreds long before the the Walkman. He's definitely pre-Walkman, yeah. Yeah, so I think in some ways, the Alakman didn't create this issue of kind of wanting to be alone in public or wanting your own space, but it enabled people to do that in a way that hadn't previously been possible. And yeah, I think as with any technology, there were upsides and downsides to that. It did maybe make people social in public spaces, or but... It also, you don't always want to be social with the other commuters on the train, but maybe that's okay sometimes. Right. And I think it was seen as, as I read about in the book, it was seen as kind of a symbol of the 80s and the individualism that was seen as really prevalent during well, that and time. Well, yupp- yuppie individualism in particular, right? Yeah. But also, so yuppie individualism, but also teenagers who were seen as kind of isolated and just watching MTV at home and playing video games and listening to their Walkmans. So that was a bit different than the yuppie phenomenon, but Mm. the Walkman was really popular among both groups. Another issue that 
this raised, the welcome raised, as you also point out in the book and that we touched on very briefly earlier, is the beginning of piracy in some ways, right? And of music potentially being stolen. How did you approach that subject in terms of obviously the nostalgia that you experienced for a particular kind of piracy that you engaged in and that we all Many we people all engaged did. in. It's we not just did, Rebecca. Right? It was not just Rebecca. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I remember fondly recording. I chose the radio option. Me too. I, rec- <laughs> I recorded cassettes off the radio because how else would that's I That's how you got the hits. That's how you got the hits. And when you didn't have access to a checkbook. Yeah, or parents that would <laughs> or buy parents, you albums. That's how you could listen to the songs you wanted to hear. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach this issue personally, perhaps, and also in terms of how you've seen it develop now looking through the history of the Walkman? So I was completely oblivious to it at the time. But now, having researched it, I know that there were these campaigns that I guess were especially prominent in the UK. There was the home taping is killing music campaign. And that slogan was printed on a lot of records that were produced in the UK. And so I guess that campaign failed to some extent because (laughs) you or I were totally unaware of it, but it's not directly related to the walk. I mean, it's related, but I mean, the Walkman wasn't exactly implicated, except the Walkman did make cassettes was one factor that made cassettes a lot more popular as opposed to vinyl. And so now it's hard to see it in any other way, except as paling in comparison to the piracy that occurred later. It seems so innocent now, but at the same time, I guess it was obviously a precursor and maybe made the idea that you should be able to get music without necessarily paying for it made that idea kind of acceptable. And so in that way, it could have led to the more recent online piracy that we're more familiar with in a certain way. Well, okay. So if we kind of wander away from the gray legal territory of recording (laughs) off the radio, do you remember the first cassette tape that you bought? I don't actually. It might have been Nirvana. Never mind. Oh, that's a good one. That's way cooler. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was completely obsessed with Nirvana. (laughs) So (laughs) that was certainly one of the first. I was in seventh or eighth grade when I was in seventh or eighth grade when that album came out. And that was kind of my awakening in terms of when I started to get really into music and that it was became kind of part of my identity, you know, which bands I liked. And so Nirvana was my gateway band into all of those other bands. I mean, as for many other people, but Eric, what was yours? So yeah, that's that's the first I remember. Oh, mine was, this is actually, I think, very telling. Mine, they were two, and I bought them both at the same time because I had saved up enough money to buy one CD or two cassettes, and I decided to buy two cassettes. And it was Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Oh, good one. And yeah. Celine Dion's The Color <laughs> of My Love. <laughs> Who knew what was coming from Different those choices? Different types of balladeers, I guess you could say. But what about you? What was the first cassette tape that you bought? I believe mine was Boys to Men. Oh, <laughs> I love them. BBD. They're B-B-B. great. <laughs> They're great. It was a good choice. I might have also chosen a Beatles record or something to uh, sort of appease the parents and show them that this wasn't just <laughs> a bad influence <laughs> on a young mind. Rebecca, can you talk a little bit about the physical objects themselves? 
I mean, because there seems to me also to be a kind of nostalgia for the cassette as a form. I mean, both for the Walkman or the personal stereo is kind of a chunky thing that you carried around, but also for like all of us have this tactile memory of that kind of cassettes that we had that meant something to us. And also you, the epilogue of your book ends on a kind of very brief sort of meditation on the thing as an object, right? Because you get your hands on one. I won't give it away, (laughs) but you, you try to listen to it and then you discover something goes wrong. Yeah. So you do kind of end on acknowledging it as a an object. Yeah. yeah. And I think, as you mentioned, there is a tactile memory that we have of cassettes, Walkmans, maybe video games. They're more fathomable, understandable. Like, I have no idea, you know, how my computer works or how my iPhone works. And I think by design, I think Steve Jobs, you know, intended that it wouldn't be open and not that I would probably understand anyway, but with the Walkman and tapes, like, you know, sometimes the tape ribbon would get kind of caught in the machine or it would get a little bit mangled and you would have to try to smooth it out and roll it back up and you could kind of fix it. And it was just sometimes more clear. <laughs> Not sometimes, always. Yeah. Sometimes. You had to be very careful. <laughs> right. But I mean, at least, it made sense how it worked. And I think we missed that. Yeah, there's the batteries and the way that the batteries, as opposed to now when your batteries are running low, you it doesn't really affect the functioning of the phone. But when your batteries were running low, it, the music would start sounding different and it would slow down and it would turn into this drone. Right. <laughs> so that was awful, actually, when that would happen. <laughs> So my nostalgia for that is kind of mixed, really, I would dread that happening. But of course, now looking back, I have kind of fond memories of it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us. We've been speaking with Rebecca Tuz-Dubrow, a writer and researcher at the University of California, Irvine, whose latest book is a cultural history of the Walkmen called Personal Stereo, out from Bloomsbury Academic as part of their Object Lesson series. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Rebecca. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolfe. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 